This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young. We're all superstars. Andrew. Good morning, everybody. I want to thank you once again for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald. This is my show, Living Fearlessly, with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV, radio, terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, I am joined by yet another phenomenal guest. My guest today is author Jen Nedelicki. And before I turn it over to Unscripted Dialogue, as I always do with my weekly guest, I'm just going to plug a little bit about Jan's bio and who she is, given how expansive the listenership is. So who is Jan? Well, what I can tell you about Jan is that she taught AP language and composition and creative writing at George Washington High School, a three-time National Blue Ribbon Award-winning school. Her novel for young adults, The Skipworth Summer, was published in 2012. She lives with her husband, Rick, in Robbins, Iowa, where she enjoys spirited discussions with the women of Serendipity Book Club, playing mahjong poorly, she says, and volunteering for Gems of Hope, an organization to support cancer sufferers. We Dare Not Whisper is her first novel for adults, which is what we're going to partially talk about here today. So, Jan, I want to welcome you to my show, Living Fearlessly. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for having me on the program, Lisa. Well, it's such an honor and a privilege to have you. Uh, we are authors, so of course you're speaking to my heart and uh, very much in the same tribe. I really believe that vibe attracts tribe. And I just want to say before we, we hop into you telling the listeners and educating us a little bit about your books, I'm just going to start off with my own testimonial. Um, I read this book, and of course, I've been receiving books from uh, Brick Mantle, the publishing company who you're affiliated with, with your books. And I just want to say I was deeply, deeply touched. And I think this particular book um, and the storyline would resonate with so many people outside of who it perhaps already has resonated with, whoever's been very fortunate to get their hands on a copy of. It's got everything in it. It truly has everything in it. It talks about the complexities of family relationships. Uh, there's mental health issue. Talk about a mother being bipolar. We talk about all kinds of things. So what I want to know from you, Jan, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the book itself, is I would like to know about you. I'd like to know the, about the inception of your journey that kind of birthed this whole feeling, the compulsion, the passion to write and, and writing about this type of material specifically. So why don't you inform us a little bit about that? Okay, thank you, Lisa. Um, the, the book actually grew from a very painful year when a friend of mine lost her adult son in a car accident, and we obviously all grieve in different ways, but her grief was something very difficult to see, and at the time we didn't know that she was suffering from bipolar disorder, and that that was only revealed and diagnosed after the fact. Um, So I kind of watched her family uh, situation and thought how difficult it is to grieve under any circumstances and then to grieve 
when you yourself are suffering from um, um, mental disability, uh, that's almost unthinkable. So that was the impetus for the story. Wow. And how, and how is your friend doing now? Um, I think as with, with people who deal with this kind of um, um, illness, I think there are good days and there are bad days. Um, uh, unfortunately, relationships sometimes break down, and uh, her family relationship is not good now. Uh, but I, I think she copes to the best of her ability, and um, uh, every day is a struggle, I guess. Yeah. I, I understand that having previously worked in the social service mental health sector. So I just want to say that I, I knew that there had to be a connection between there being a personal affiliation because for the way in which you wrote, for the way in which you depicted this so authentically and so raw, uh, I knew there had to be an actual connection. This wasn't something that just came from strictly imagination. Um, so what I garnered from you, what I gleaned from you, which I think speaks about who you are outside of being the author, but more importantly, the human being, you're very compassionate, very empathetic, uh, and I would say a very plugged in, in tune human being. So I want to thank you for for your contributions to what you bring to humanity, let alone what you've brought to your friend in part of the healing journey through birthing this book. Well, thank you for those very kind words. Thank you. So why don't you, why don't you delve into the book? Why don't you talk about the main character, who it's narrated by, and um, what starts to initially unfold within the book before it gets through the tapestry of what people would then find throughout the middle and the end? Okay. Um, the book begins with uh, a prologue. The narrator is first person, it's done in first person, and the speaker is Luce Garrison. She is the um, daughter of uh, Nolan Garrison and her mother, Betts. Um, Nolan is a um, uh, manager of a feed mill in Wisconsin, and her mother is um, a law educated, she's educated, has uh, almost has her degree in law, and um, so she is the uh, daughter of these two people, and prior to her birth, um, her, her mother loses a child, uh, stillbirth, there's a stillbirth and her mother loses that child, and then 11 years later, uh, Luce is gifted with a little brother, Johnny, and um, this is the story of their family dynamic. Luce, uh, from the very beginning, uh, feels maybe a bit unwanted, and that, coupled with the illness that her mother uh eventually demonstrates makes it very, very difficult for her to um, feel connected to many of her family members. So this is her story, but it's also the story of her mother's um, illness, her father's reaction to that illness, and um, what this kind of family dynamic does to each of the individuals that are involved. Wow. Um, so, So what I would ask you to, Jan, is, you know, for all the characters, because of course it's not just the readers themselves who can somehow identify with characters within the book or the storyline itself or the subject matter of mental health issues and how that plagues a family, what it does to a family, the ripple effects, the repercussions. Um, but which characters specifically within this book, looking on, back on your own childhood, looking back on your own family dynamics, past, current, otherwise, uh, which character do you most identify with on a personal level? 
That's a really interesting question because I think um, every author invests something of him or herself in every character that they write. Um, I, I um, am, am fortunate that mental illness has not touched my family, but um, there are always mother-daughter relationships that, that one can draw on, and there is certainly some strained relationships in, in, um, in the story in the book. Um, my mother and I share a, a wonderful um, relationship, but I, I think there are always sibling rivalries as well. So I think the character of Luce, um, I, think, I think I can see myself somewhat in the character of Luce. Um, I, I can also see, uh, quite frankly, myself in the mother because the mother has an obsessive love for her children, and I have an obsessive love for my three children as well. Mm-hmm. So I think we draw on, on personal experiences, and as I said, I think we invest ourselves in each one of the characters that we write. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I, I've, I've had people actually come up to me and, and ask if this is a personal story. Uh, they think that I am loose, and um, uh, I guess my response to that is I'm really grateful that they feel that loose is such a believable character that it had to come from personal experience. Um, the the impetus, as we talked about, was extremely personal, but um, the rest of it was truly imagining how a family would deal with bipolar disorder and grief at, at the same time. So I... I I don't know if that's kind of a wishy-washy answer, but I can't really say that I'm, I'm any one of those characters or most closely identify with everyone, any one of those characters. No, it's a very authentic answer, and I appreciate you taking the time to explain it that, that well and that way. So um, now is Luce, who is the main character of the book, uh, is that the same name as who you've, who the story derived out of? Oh, no. Okay. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I actually spent a lot of time uh, working with character names. The family's last name is Garrison, and I think there are a couple of references in there about um, almost a siege-like state, a, a battle-like warrior state almost sometimes within the household, and uh, Garrison seemed to be a name that was appropriate. Um, I... I liked the fact that Luce's middle name is Evelyn, and when she thinks about having a child, she thinks about naming it uh, sort of a permutation of, of that name, Eve, uh, mm-hmm. the new generation. So I really try to think a lot about the names of the characters um, as, as I write. Lovely. Well, I love the abstractness involved in, in the character formation and development that, you know, again, that's another layer of what people don't necessarily understand of what goes into the writing uh, and birthing a book from an author's perspective. There's so many layers and elements that need to be considered outside of whatever it is you're specifically writing about. So for the, for the writers who are listening, the authors <laughs> or for people who are on the fence or the cusp and they feel compelled to also at some point in their juncture, uh, birth a book, that's a really important nugget. So thank you for sharing that as well, Jen. <laughs> Yeah, um, I've often had uh, discussions with my students about authorial intent and, and um, you know, when we recognize that something's happening in a book, the layers that you speak of or sometimes the subtext and the students will always ask me, well, 
they couldn't mean to do that. And uh, I, I, I laugh because um, I, I liken it to an architect who builds a building. They have a blueprint in their head, and, and uh, form follows function. The design of that building has to correlate with the, the purpose of the building. The same thing in writing. We, we, des- we have a design in our head, and the form should follow the function. We, in order to get that most effective message across, we have to design it as carefully as an architect designs a building, I think. Wow, it's a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. Um, now, for your friend, for your friend who was captured in the character of Luce, um, you know, from your personal private discussions or even your, you know, your own intuitive uh, or just firsthand knowledge experience with what you've come to understand as uh, a mature woman, uh, somebody who's obviously very empathetic, very compassionate about humanity at large. Um, you know, what do you still believe are the taboos or the stigmas uh, that are attached to mental health issues? Call it bipolar specifically or anything that falls within the spectrum. Where do you feel we still have yet to go in terms of awareness and education and demystifying and debunking uh, preconceived notions? It's really an excellent question. I, I think um, I think sometimes we're at fault when we categorize mental illness as some other kind of um, complication. We give, um, I have a friend who's suffering from pancreatic cancer right now. That suffering is very physical and very real, um, and it's easy to be compassionate. But when we see someone who is suffering from mental illness that, you know, they're not running a fever, they're not losing weight, they're not um, exemplifying some kind of, or uh, exhibiting some kind of signs of um, physical deterioration and that that um, that struggle is within the mind, it's sometimes easy for people to say, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, get it together. And I, I think um, I think that lack of empathy and that lack of compassion is what continues to keep uh, those who suffer from mental illness a, a, a bit on the edges. Um, my my oldest son happens to be um, a psychiatrist here in in town, and he's a board certified psychiatrist who uh, whose specialty is bipolar disorder. And um, he was an amazing resource in understanding the breadth and depth of this um, disorder and um, in diagnosing, you know, giving me information about diagnosing uh, the illness and treatment protocols. But it's so difficult to know when there has been success. And I think that's another that's another area where we, you know, we're a society of fast cures and quick fixes. And this is something that people who struggle with it struggle with it for life. It's something that can be managed, but it's not necessarily something that can be cured, unlike other areas of, of um, medicine. So um, here specifically in Iowa, I can give you an example that um, our, our governor recently cut funding for um, mental health and closed some mental health institutions. People here struggle to find uh, bed space for those uh, people who need psychiatric care, and sometimes they're being um, carted out of state uh, in order to find um, appropriate care. So I think we actually have a long way to go in dealing with mental illness and um, the compassionate treatment of that. 
We absolutely do. We absolutely do. And another question that comes to mind, again, this is all unscripted, but I just, this is such yummy dialogue. I, you know, anything that really delves into the heart and the meat and potatoes of anything that I believe impacts so many people, but it still remains in whatever fashion or for whatever reason, something that's just not comfortably broached or openly discussed, you know, those are the types of subject matters that I just want to jump and dig in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I play devil's advocate oftentimes in many discussions, and it's not for taking a, a, a certain point of view or a position on something, but I think by playing devil's advocate, it opens up another layer of people kind of getting at the crux of certain things. So the question that I would want to ask you, Jan, is, you know, not wanting to ostracize or isolate somebody, particularly if it's a family member or it's a close friend, but somebody who you know struggles uh, daily with mental health. And let's just go with bipolar and being consistent Mm -hmm. with the book. So, you know, if you have another family member who is, you know, really, really committed to remaining healthy and asserting uh, appropriate boundaries and making sure that their relationships are healthy and uh, spared from any toxicity, anything that sometimes, unfortunately, not to the person's detriment who does struggle with mental health, but because we know you know, and not in every case do people opt to go the medicated route. You know, some people have an aversion to medication or there's a conspiracy theory attached to that or it's, you know, part of the mania where they don't feel that they need to be medicated, they feel that they're fine, whatever the reason is. Um, for somebody who loves somebody afflicted by bipolar or with bipolar, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time they know that, they have to look after themselves. They've got to maintain the healthiness of their own mindset. They've got to uh, healthily assert and feel that their own boundaries and their values and their principles are being respected. Um, how how do we how do we bridge that together? Where you know the people who suffer from bipolar aren't feeling always isolated or feeling like they're, uh, I don't really like this expression, but, you know, seemingly the black sheep of the family, um, but still wanting to honor the person who has a right to maintain their own personal boundaries when it comes to healthy relationships. Now, I, you know, I'm not sure that there is a really good answer to that. Um, and, and again, it gets into um, caring for someone who has, uh, who has bipolar disorder and um, making sure that um, other relationships in a family can be sustainable and can be healthy. I, I try to deal with that in the book when um, uh, Nolan, the husband, is attempting so valiantly to find some way to help Bets, and yet um, to do that, uh, he often sacrifices his relationship with his daughter, Luce, and um, I, I've had many people who've come up to me and criticized Nolan roundly for, um, for basically choosing his wife's mental health over the relationship that he has with his daughter. Um, I, I, I think in all situations, we go into survival mode in a way. Um, you're right that we have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of those that we love. Um, and, and who's to say what the protocol is or what the, what the, um, 
<laughs> what the menu of selections would be, there aren't any guarantees when it comes to mental health because, as I mentioned before, it's it's such a difficult thing to diagnose and to treat. Um, so when when we have um, family members who are in conflict because one needs more attention or one needs more um, more care and more nurturing because of the illness, um, you know. How do we how do we make sure that others in our family and, and that we as caregivers are are um, taken care of as well? I, I I think that's at the core of the book, and um, I I don't know that we offer any answers, but I think as you mentioned before, awareness that these kinds of issues exist can make us more um, uh, more sensitive to those who struggle with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, having worked in mental health and having counseled with family, that's, you know, what I play devil's advocate to there. That's sometimes the concern that comes back. It's, you know, I, I want to love my family member. Uh, I want to be present. I, I, you know, they do the research. They consult with the doctors, um, you know, and they're good people. You know, these yes. are good people. These yes. aren't people saying, okay, that's not my issue or uh, it's too cumbersome. I'm not willing to be of support because it doesn't fit into my daily grind of how I operate necessarily. But it's just, you know, in order to keep ourselves healthy, um, it's very hard to be on that roller coaster with people. And it's not about blaming them and it's not about saying that, um, you know, that any anything that, interpreted could be seemingly interpreted as um contentious or or negative or anything that's said uh from a frame of mind that's not necessarily balanced at that particular moment you know it's very hard for people not to personalize things or feel that they're constantly going down that rabbit hole when what they need to do for themselves particularly if they're parents themselves and they have they are responsible and accountable for a whole host of other people um they have to ensure that their own mental health is um is up to par. Um, so, so you know, so that's that's a concern that I've heard working intimately with families who have really tried to work with family members who grapple with this, and it truly does affect the whole family. It's no different than anything like cancer. Uh, right. one, family, one family member is affected; everybody's affected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, not, none of this ever happens to any of us in isolation, and um, I think that's why awareness of, of uh, this issue is, is of such importance. Uh, I, I had not known prior to doing research for the book that uh, bipolar disorder is uh, so widespread. And um, after visiting with many, many people at um, all readings and um, signings and book clubs, I, I have never had a situation where people have not come up to me and said, this is exactly what my daughter's going through, or this is exactly what my niece is going through, or my brother-in-law. I mean, and, and they say it's so, in fact, I, I had a woman in my own book club who um, I've known for more than 20 years, and I just learned after, um, after publishing this book, after this book was published, that uh, she had a nephew who suffered from bipolar disorder. She'd never shared that with anyone of, of the members of our group. And only after the book came out and, and we had a discussion about it in our own book club did she feel free to offer that. And she said it was really liberating. So I do think that conversation has to be, um, has to be at the forefront about these issues. 
Beautiful. Well, and, you know, that's another testament to the book and the nature of what it is you've chosen to write about because statistically we know that mental health, call it bipolar, specifically under the spectrum, um, we we know how many people that this impacts statistically. And, um, you know, it's, it's like sexual abuse. There's a lot of things that people don't necessarily want to talk about or they don't want to voluntarily come forward and say, this is in my family or this is what I grapple with on a daily basis or this is part of my own personal journey um, because there is the fear. There is the fear of how you're going to be perceived differently, uh, mm-hmm. how, you're, how you're going to be perhaps judged, and especially if the lens in which you're being judged is coming from a filter of somebody who doesn't know much about the subject. They just hear uh, perhaps all the you know, the, the non-favorable things, but they haven't balanced that out with knowing all elements and aspects of what it entails. Right, right. Well, I, I, and, and I think until there is no longer a stigma attached to, uh, mental illness, I, uh, and, and revealing that and seeking help for it, I think, I think until that stigma is lifted, I think it's an issue we're gonna have to face for, for quite some time, unfortunately. I agree. I agree. And unfortunately, you're right. Um, now, in terms of having written something so raw and so beautiful, um, you know, where do you go from this with your writing journey? Is there something in the works? Is there something that you feel, uh, you know, that there's a follow-up to this particular type of subject matter? Or do you envision yourself, if you do choose to write another book, a third book, um, it being completely different or similarities, overlaps? Um, One of the most frequent questions I get at at gatherings is, well, what happens to Luz? Are you going to write a sequel? And Uh I... (laughs) The answer is no. I'm not going to write a sequel. Um, I... um, it was a tough book to write, as, as you mentioned. It's kind of raw, and and it, it was a tough book to write. Uh, I think dealing with emotions and attempting not to make the thing maudlin is, is, is really important. Um, so I I kind of laid that on the table with this particular book, and I'm I'm not going to revisit that subject. But human relations are at the core of what interests me. Um, so I actually have um, another book in the works that uh, takes place in the Pacific Northwest. My son and his wife had the good fortune of living um, on Bainbridge Island, um, uh, out near your neck of the woods, I think, and um, right off of the coast of Washington in the Sound, and um, I was intrigued by riding the ferry back and forth and people watching. And um, so I thought it would be really fun to write a, a series of thematically linked short stories that take place on the ferry. Um, wow. And, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I have to confess, though, um, and maybe this is more information than you want, but um, I had started the prologue for that book back last fall and then um, sort of had some unexpected uh Open heart surgery at Mayo, and for oh, whatever wow. reason, well, for whatever reason, my my um, uh, my drive to write has sort of um, I don't know <laughs> uh, evaporated a little bit. I have the prologue sitting there, which I'm really happy with, and I know what I want to do. But getting myself to sit down and, and focus has been a little bit of a, a, a challenge here in the last few months. So I'm hoping that. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping that with time, I'll I'll get back to that soon. <laughs> well, that's completely understandable. And how are you healing? 
Oh, I'm I'm doing great. I'm 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 doing just great. Thanks for asking. It was um, it was an unusual little curveball in life, but we we all face those. So yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, but I, I, I write for my children and, and grandchildren. I'm, I have maybe 13 or 14 children's books. I have six grandchildren, and um, I haven't pursued um, any kind of publishing with those, but um, we're having fun with those. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah. you know, it's lovely to hear that you're very well-rounded that way and very diversified as an author because, you know, it brings something to everybody. You know, everybody loves books, everybody loves literacy, everybody loves storytelling, and everybody loves getting lost in a story. So um, I think that's amazing. Congratulations on all of that. That's I did not know all of that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, um, I'm, I'm feeling very, very fortunate to have uh, a career in teaching and then to be able to do some writing here now that I'm retired from teaching. So I'm a very fortunate lady. Excellent. Congratulations. Yeah. And so how would you how would you describe what your first book is about? I know the premise of this radio show was to hone in specifically about We Dare Not Whisper. Um, but in terms of the Skipworth Summer, which was published in 2012, can you tell us a little bit about that for people who, as a result of reading this, uh, listening to this show, uh, go out and end up buying your book as a result of just falling in love with you on the radio and wanting to know more about, uh, you know, mental health and bipolar specifically. People are obviously going to want to possibly know more about other uh, bodies of work that they can get their hands on. So can you tell us a little bit about the Skipworth Summer, what that's all about? Absolutely. That one was really more of a labor of love. I, I taught um, at the middle school and high school levels for uh, my entire career. And so I was dealing mostly with young adult literature, um, teaching it and analyzing it and loving it and reading it. And um, I chose to write The Skipworth Summer uh, because that was the that was for the age group that I was teaching at the time. But it was also a really personal journey. Um, it was based upon it's it's a, a work of fiction, but it's based upon the life of my grandfather, who was an incredibly interesting man. At the age of 10, his mother was um, killed in an accident where they were going to a grist mill to have some wheat ground, and she was thrown from a wagon, and uh, the wagon passed over her. This was back in 1910, and the wagon passed over her, and from that point on, her children um, were split up in order to be able to... um, uh, you know, be taken care of. The father couldn't take care of them all. And so my grandfather was kind of farmed out to different relatives, and he grew up a very independent, um, strong man that my own children and grandchildren obviously never had the opportunity to know. So I decided to write The Skipworth Summer as um, kind of a loving tribute to this man who um, I idolized and yet who had as we all do, flaws that, um, mm-hmm. that, that made it, it difficult. So the premise of that book is from the perspective of a 15-year-old young man who's been in trouble with the law. He's an orphan himself, and um, he commits an act of vandalism in um, this little small Arkansas town. And the only one to whom he can turn is Luther Skipworth, who's my grandfather. Um, mm-hmm. and he, he takes him in um, and... Uh, 
attempts to kind of set him on the right path. And he decides, he's a 75-year-old man, and the, the young man uh, who he's trying to help is 15 years old, and he attempts to adopt this young man. And um, uh, there are all, all sorts of interesting things that go along with the law with that to begin with. But he attempts, <laughs> he, he attempts to adopt this young man, um, and uh, the, the story is about their relationship and how a very unlikely savior uh, comes along and helps this young 15-year-old boy. So it's a, it's a work very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's a way of paying tribute to my grandfather and to allow my children and my grandchildren to know a man that I, I, I basically idolized. Um, and yet it's not... It, it, I, I think the subject matter is such that we all need heroes in our lives. Yes. And um, uh, so... Even though it's a very personal story, I hope it's the kind of story that people can relate to on a, on a much broader level as well. Beautiful. Well, what a lovely tribute. And, um, you know, and we talk about that as well quite frequently on the show because, of course, everything here premised, not just my own host show of Living Fearlessly, but the network itself, um, you know, Consciousness in Action, Contact Talk Radio Network. It's, you know, we talk about leadership. We talk about what it is to rise and what it is to step up and to pay it forward and to be of service uh, to others all the time. I really believe that's what we're fundamentally here to do. And I think that gets birthed out of what we come to discover are our inherent passions. And within that, we also come to understand what it is our purpose is more importantly. Uh, you know, once you figure out what your purpose is, then you're on fire. Then you know where to go. Then you know who, you know, the target audience is. And I think, you know, whether people know and can relate to who, you know, your role model has been, we all have them. We, we all, we all have them. And, and we talk a lot about mentorship and we talk about what it is, uh, that defines who we are based on the types of people that we feel drawn to synergistically, energetically. Um, so, you know, I, I'm looking forward to get my hands on that book too. This is great. <laughs> um, I, I think that's the thing that I have always loved about literature is that it it touches us all, and um, it, we can always find something uh, in what we read to make us think, whether we agree or disagree with it. I think that's one of my favorite things about my book club. We've been together for more than 20 years, and um, uh, some of our selections are not always ones that I might pick up on my own, but, oh, my gosh, the conversation that follows is um, – always amazing and and um we can come to ex- not only to um i don't know discuss but to appreciate the, the lines of thinking that other people engage in and, and i think it makes us richer for knowing and being able to discuss different viewpoints so i i uh, where would the world be without literature it, it's absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly on that one, Jan. Now, as a former teacher, you're retired now, correct? Yes, I am. Okay, so a couple questions I have about that. So, you know, of course, it was captured in your bio that the um, that the school that you taught at, it was a three-time national Blue Ribbon Award-winning school. Now, what does Blue Ribbon mean and why that school? What, what makes it so unique and spectacular and outstanding as compared to some of the others that weren't recognized for that award? 
Um, it, the school is is truly amazing. Um, it is. Um, we have three really large high schools, um, and then one alternative high school in the area, um, within the Cedar Rapids area. And then there are um, two other really large major high schools. So in this metropolitan area, very. Um, Diverse population and uh, Washington High School, where I taught, has probably the most diverse population in the city um, from all socioeconomic levels. Um, uh, I think we had students who represented, um, I, I don't want to misspeak, but I think maybe 18 foreign languages that were um, native to some of our students. Um, so we had such a diverse population and um, Washington for uh, many, many, many years uh, was noted for its academic achievement. We uh, had more AP scholars, I think, than um, every other high school in the state except for an actual AP academy, which is located in the capital city in Des Moines here in Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, there were just um, just uh, extreme extremely high academic standards at Washington, and they were um, met, I think, by a fantastic staff and um, a gifted administration. So we were really lucky. The the national significance for a, a Blue Ribbon Award winner is um, that it meets a set of criteria established at the at the national level. And obviously, schools have to apply for that. But Washington was was honored to be uh, recognized three times. So um, wonderful, wonderful high school. And then prior to that, I was at Harding Middle School, who was um, was also a, a national blue winner uh, here in Cedar Rapids. So um, I'm uh, very grateful to have been in uh, the education system here in, in Iowa. Strong, strong foundation in education. Super. Fantastic. Well, I, too, come from a line of um, teachers within my family. My grandmother taught. My dad taught. My uh, stepmother taught. Uh, they're now retired, and my grandmother's now deceased. But, um, you know, so that's that's really been big in my family. And, you know, from your perspective as a former teacher, I'd like to know for the length of time that you taught and comparing it to what you would now at least hear of uh, and be privy to within the school systems, the educational system, you know, where do you think we're becoming more progressive, perhaps, in terms of how we're imparting a different way of learning or teaching to our young ones as they go through the school system? And what do you believe we still have a long ways in yet to do in terms of developing certain types of curriculum that might be more congruent with the type of culture that we're now living in? I think, obviously, technology has made a huge difference in the way that we um, both teach and evaluate student progress. Um, I, I know that um, my grandchildren are privy to very sophisticated technology, um, and I, I am grateful for that, and yet I also hope that we never get to the point where um, instruction is <laughs> isolated between student and and uh, computer. You know what I mean? We uh, that social interaction is is still so very important. And I think one of the things that scares me a little bit about technology in schools is that um, if we um, allow students to become so insular in their learning that um, uh, you know that, that interface with that screen is is the primary uh, part of their, their instructional day, that scares me. 
I'll, I'll be frank, that scares me. Um, I do think we're doing a, a much better job in attempting to determine best practices um, and that we um, are attempting to define um, learning not not have they have, has a student demonstrated a year's growth, for example, but has a student grown from uh, his or her place? We, we can't have a one size fits all uh, measure for students. And I think that we're we're getting better at, at uh, uh, evaluating progress. So that's that's another thing that I think is great. Um, I'm, I'm happy to see it. We're, my husband and I both serve on a scholarship committee for um, deserving young students here in the area, and um, we're always so engaged um, by the kinds of applications students make now and the kind of um, service learning that has become important in the schools. I think that's a, a really crucial component. Um, but I, I, I think we need to uh, be sure that we have top-notch teachers, facilities that are um, conducive to learning beyond the four classroom walls, and um, and that we um, are um, making sure that students are engaged in uh, real-life world situations, that we are um, in tune with what's going on, not only in our own nation, but around the world. We are a global community, and I think global learning has to be a part of what we do. So um, I, I've been retired for a, a number of years, but I'm still in touch frequently with uh, people who are still involved in the school systems. And um, I, I think that uh, we, you know, it's, it's going to be a battle that will always be um, at the forefront because we need to make sure that there's adequate funding and sometimes uh, that's not always on our legislators top priority mm-hmm. well the one thing I would say as you know and I, and I don't know what has um, been incorporated into the school system that would be different from what I went through school but I you know now that I've come out of the school system and I did college and I did university you know completed high school and um, you know I still I, I think it's very crucial that at some point somebody have the discussion of some of the core issues and subjects that speak to all of us as human beings post-education that we carry over uh, into our daily lives, our relationships. You know, I think there needs to be some kind of course that talks about what it is to value the self, you know, self-love, because we know a lot of kids who are going to school, they're not coming from the most healthy, functional type family situation or setting. And, um, you know, there's so much more that I think needs to be imparted to children. And this isn't a slag against the school system because, you know, there's a lot of skills that are taught that are very practically based uh, that, you know, do set you on the right path for whatever is in store for each one of us in the future going forward uh, with what our choices are for career path. But I'm talking about, you know, Talking about how to how to do taxes, how to oh, how yeah. to, you know like how to handle how to handle your money, understanding the the relationship that I think we we still all struggle with in terms of our understanding or our interpretation of money. Um, it's you know we talk about what it is to make money, or you know the more education you get, the more elevated the status of what types of paying jobs you might be able to get into at the entry level, and then you know if you work hard enough, you can aspire to get if you're not the one running the company or you're not an entrepreneur. So I, I just think there's just so many things like you know you look at the divorce rates, you know more than fifty percent of people uh, 
don't know how to keep their relationships going. I mean, we've got so many therapists and counselors and marriage counselors and divorce lawyers. And I just think there's so many things that I think are missing uh, at, at a very crucial uh, stage of development for kids growing up that I think is important for them to realize. And, and again, not knowing what each person's individual family structure is and whether it's the type of family that's either mindful of these types of things to discuss with their children on an individual or family base level. I still think this kind of understanding and teachings have to come from somewhere. So if not the family and not the school, then what, we kind of figure it out on our own, become a statistic somewhere along the line? I think there's more work that needs to be done with that. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and the point that you make about um, about what what is going on in each one of our, our uh, students' lives, I, I, I don't know if this is an appropriate place to relate this story, but that really came home to me when um, uh, I, was, I was teaching at Washington and I had um, – uh, a, a young woman and I who had um, kind of uh, butted heads. I've, I've been I've been called a pretty strict, pretty strict teacher, and uh, we had kind of butted heads all year long. And um, no matter what I tried, whether it was you know that one on one, the the, the um, uh, you know expressing interest, let, let's sit down and talk, or whether it was a little bit firmer hand. No matter what, it just didn't seem like I was getting through to this young woman and. Um, over Christmas vacation, um, my sons were in town and we were playing volleyball and I fell and smashed my face and came back to school, uh, after the winter break with bruises and stitches and swelling because I had, <laughs> I had really made a mess of it. And, um, the first thing this young woman did was said, who beat you? Wow. And it, 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 it made it just made me hurt because this young woman that was her perspective that that if someone was injured it was because obviously you must have been beaten at home and wow I um, I considered myself educated that day because she taught me a lesson in humanity that we don't all come from a, a, a place of comfort and um, security at, at home. And I think when you say we need to talk about relationships, about about handling ourselves, our, our mental health, our social health, our economic health, um, we do have to address those issues. I think you make an excellent point, but uh, it, it was it was a wake up call for me to remind myself that we have we all come from such different perspectives. Absolutely, we do. Absolutely, we do. And. You know, when I, my experience of, of working within the school systems, it was, uh, a kind of an extension of what I did working with kids in group homes and foster homes. So we would work in specialized classroom settings for children who had either been kicked out of their traditional, uh, school classroom setting because they couldn't get along with their peers or there was a whole host of uh, underlying issues that were still needing to be worked through, you know, with the children's age, with the group home staff, with the supervisors and school. And, um, you know, and I just thought it was pretty interesting that subject matters, uh, which we are all impacted by at different levels for different reasons, only seem to resonate or be a, a, a topic of discussion if they knew that the person who we were talking about lived in a group home or a foster home. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's so many people who don't live in group homes and foster homes, uh, and unbeknownst to 
you know, teachers perhaps on a daily basis or even friends or family because we often know when there's abuse going on, there's there's a level of threat and intimidation as well and the need to keep silent. So, you know, I, I think it's very important that, um, you know, we don't just make the conversation open and available to people who we know already fall into the category of there being emotional issues or behavioral management issues where you have to develop like a specialized BMOD program or, or you know, positive reinforcements or restructure the entire uh, daily curriculum. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think there's a long, long way to go. Everybody, everybody grapples with emotions. Everybody has different coping mechanisms. Everybody has uh, come from a different infrastructure of support that either makes it okay to openly discuss things that need to be discussed. Otherwise, they get repressed and they come out in the way of crime. They come out in the way of addiction. Um, so I just think, you know, it's not enough to say that there's a guidance counselor down the hall. And if you're strong enough to use your voice and initiate knocking on that door uh, or, you know, somebody from the outside, like the police or a children's aid worker, is going to intervene on your behalf. I think there has to be uh, a, an open, ongoing dialogue, and maybe that cues people to go, okay, I am a human being. It doesn't matter if I'm considered a minor, but I don't have the right to be abused. I don't have a right to have to enable uh, uh, my mom or my dad at home who's got substance abuse issues and is too far gone to know that they need to find help because the whole family's going down the tubes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I, I. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. That was that was kind of my my shtick there. <laughs> well, I I um to address that issue too. I uh, that's one of the things I really love about the counselor in the book. We dare not whisper, Mrs. Strife, who who talks to Luce. Um, Luce, you know, I I love that a, a school counselor is one who can who can um, not, she didn't wait for Luce to come to her. She initiated uh, that contact, said this is, you know, this is something that isn't okay. Things at your house obviously aren't okay. I need to intervene. Somebody needs to step up. And, and I, I loved that the counselor in the book took the initiative to help. Um, So I, to your point, exactly. I, I I think we need to be aware and, and, and take action. Uh, So many people say, what can one person do? But uh, that's the most important thing is what every one person can do. Absolutely. And I just think it's, you know, whatever it is that we're talking about in life, but I think particularly when we're talking about, you know, harnessing the uh, development of children and knowing that they're going to be turning into independent adults, you know, let's be proactive. Let's not deal with the reactionary stuff after the fact and, and, and just throw people into counseling or, you know, or, you know, have them talk to a financial advisor because they're now facing bankruptcy. Like, let's teach people these skills before it becomes even problematic is my point. But, you know, unfortunately, I'm cognizant of time, Jan, and this has been such a yummy interview, and I love where these go, especially unscripted, because it just opens up so many different aspects of discussion and dialogue, and it really, as uh, a radio show host, it really gives me more insight and layers of dissection into my guests and how they think and uh, what's important to them outside of what it is we're specifically highlighting within the interview. Call it a book, call it an album, call it a speaking engagement. So I just want to say how much I've really appreciated the gift of your time. Love the book. Really appreciate um, the publishing company, uh, Brick Mantle, having sent me my own personal copy. It was yummy. Uh, can I just quickly ask you to let the listeners and myself know where they can purchase your book and where you can personally be found for anybody who wants to have a dialogue with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, you can actually go straight to Brick Mantle Books website, or it's available on Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble. Um, if you're if you're looking for either hard copy or eBooks, um, and uh, as far as getting a hold of me, uh, I'm happy to uh, respond to emails at um, Jan at JanNetalecki.com, or I ha- do have a website, uh, just uh, JanNetalecki.com. So be happy to visit with you. Fantastic. Well, before we say cheerio here, and I officially say cheerio to my listeners, is there anything you would wish to impart to the listening audience, whether it comes from the perspective of writing a book or what it is to face challenges, what it is to talk about things that perhaps may still have stigma or taboo attached to them? What would your final uh, parting words be to the listening audience, Jen? Um, writing a book is like birthing a baby. You really want it to, uh, the world to love it, but you know, sometimes its ears stick out. So just, that's okay. Let the ears stick out, but go for it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I just want to say thank you again, and I wish you uh, a lovely Mother's Day. You've mentioned uh, how expansive your family is, so I hope that you're treated well this weekend, and I hope that um, we keep in touch, and, and I'd love to hear more about what's going on for you in the future with other endeavors that you embark upon so good luck with all that thank you lisa it's been a true pleasure really appreciate it oh my pleasure so thank you jan and to my listening audience i want to thank you very much for once again taking time out of your schedule to tune into my live broadcast here this is lisa mcdonald living fearlessly with the contact talk network Contact Talk Radio Network. Uh, once again, listenership is 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. I would also wish to take uh, advantage of this opportunity to say thank you for being uh, what's probably now hovering, if not surpassed, 180,000 podcast subscribers to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Can't thank you enough. Really grateful for the fact that myself and the guests that I bring on to the show for what it is that we talk about and what we're passionate about and what it is we try to do to continuously pay it forward and be of service that it's resonating with you, the listeners, and the podcast subscribers. So thank you so much for that. And I want to wish all the mothers out there a phenomenal Mother's Day weekend, all the grandmothers, the nieces, the sisters, um, even if you don't have children, and even for the men who step up and play both mother and father uh, to their children and other people's children. I just want to say for everybody who understands what it is to nurture, for what it is to care, to love. Love to to pay it forward and to be of service to other people. I just want to say I celebrate you, and I look forward to doing this again next Friday here on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Love and gratitude. All my best. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.